The Anton Savage Show with Nifty Business on News Talk. So my next guest wrote one of the best-selling books of the 21st century. That was The Tattooist of Auschwitz. It sold more than 16 million copies. It's being adapted into a Sky TV series. It was the best-selling book in Ireland in 2019. Her latest novel is Sisters Under the Rising Sun and it is selling like hotcakes as one would imagine uh, given her success rate so far. Heather Morris, you are very welcome. Oh, look, thank you. It's a delight to be here. Now, we have to talk about the book. Before we talk about the book, I want to ask about um, your own personal experience of the success of The Tattooist of Auschwitz because when you look back at authors who have had the kind of sales that you have had they either tend to have had them in their 20s or 30s or they tend to have had a career that started in their 20s and 30s and then took off you only got into this at the point at which you would have thought your path in life was fairly established Yeah, kind of bucked the trend there didn't I astonishingly so to write the first book at 65 and I've now clocked the 70 and five years, five books. Had you published any works before the first book? No, not a thing. I hadn't even attempted to write anything. I mean, that's extraordinary because you, you went back to do, you did journalism, isn't that right? As no, a not mature journalism. I wanted to tell Lali's story and I didn't know how to write a book. So I conceded that you know, I knew my limitations. So for me, I thought, somebody said, well, you know, screenplays, you can learn that. That's a craft. That's an art. It has a formula. It has rules. So I went online, did a couple of weekend online courses of how to write a screenplay. And sure enough, there you go. Three acts. Do not deviate. Only Quentin Tarantino gets to do that. (laughs) And follow the rules. You've got to do this in the first 10 pages. Now, the thing about learning to write a screenplay, no matter how good or bad it is, is it does teach a structure. It teaches you what you've got to get in and there's different points along the way. So I was just writing these random screenplays that are all sitting in the bottom drawer of my desk. So how does that then convert into the novel and the sales of the novel? Because no bugger would take my screenplay. (laughs) Uh, A production company in Melbourne had it for six years, didn't go anywhere. Hollywood didn't want to know about it. London didn't want to know about it. And I was visiting my brother and sister-in-law in San Diego one day and complaining about those sods 100 miles up the road. And my sister-in-law kind of, enough, she's going, for goodness sake, write the thing as a book and get on with it. It was like somebody flicked a light switch. Oh, okay, then I'll give it a go. But up until that point, I never dreamed that I could write a book, a novel, it just seemed, well. If the, uh, to quote yourself, the buggers down the road hadn't paid any attention, how did you get publishers to pay attention to the novel? Uh Uh-huh. I had to go another little roundabout way to do that. (laughs) Clearly, I'm well into my third act, folks. (laughs) And... um, Everyone's told me, you write these things called a query letter and you send it out to publishers and, and it takes forever. Well, one of my sons makes short films in Australia. He's now actually making bigger ones. But he had done the very first, he and his partner, crowdfunding program for Amazon on Kickstarter, the first of Australian. And he said to me, listen, Mum, as great as it was to get the money that we asked for and we got way more than it, what it did was around the world people could learn about the project. Why didn't you do that? So we sat down with Hubby. He got the video camera rolling and I made this little three-minute, hey, guys, I've got this incredible story. Plagiarise some music, plagiarise some (laughs) film from um, different documentaries. And I did this Kickstarter crowdfunding thing, not to get the money. And publishers came to me. I still do not have a rejection letter. That is, I mean, where I said about it being unusual for somebody to have had their first novel as as late in their career as you did, or starting a different career as late (laughs) as you did, 
Never to have a rejection letter no. has to be unique. I, I'm told. So you be, you get it published, you get it sold, and y- you know th- that in itself, for most authors, they say job is done. Yeah, I have succeeded. Indeed, nineteen million sales. At what point <laughs> do you begin to think this is really starting to cook? Here's the weird thing that was starting to get that traction here in the UK. I'm at the other end of the world. And I'm not picking up the vibe. Yes, my publishers are writing to me saying, this is fantastic. The book's doing really great. And I'm going, oh, that's nice. Uh, And I don't mean to be flippant. uh, I just couldn't process what was going on until I then came to London and held for the first time the Sunday newspaper and saw it was at number one. And I kind of went, oh, holy beep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is crazy. But again, that was short-lived, all that intensive time in London and around the UK and and even Ireland. Every time I come to the UK, I come to Ireland. This is my fourth time here. But still, I then left, went back to Australia and, Mum, can you look after the kids? Can we have a weekend off? Back to normal. And has it since then, because that was obviously when the, the, the book, The Tattooist of Asters, began to take off in the sales. You have had huge success with the subsequent novels after that. Mm. Has that caused your life to change dramatically? Are you chauffeured around in a Maybach? Do you live in a giant mansion? <laughs> Maybe in my dreams. <laughs> um, no, no change. Has it brought more pressure? Because at least with the first one, the objective was to get it published and get it out. Mm. If the first one is that successful, do your subsequent novels, do you feel a sense of, I better hone this perfectly so that it fits in the same pattern of success? No, I don't even do that. I feel no responsibility to anybody (laughs) but the people whose story I've told. And just, you know, hope that readers will embrace them the way I've embraced them to want to tell them. But uh, no, I don't feel pressure from anybody, except maybe when I'm a little bit late and at my deadline of uh, providing the material. And then, oh, okay, all nighter. The um, the people I'm who too stories old for this pressure, they're in this you know, <laughs> losing sleep over things. Um, the things that matter to me are my grandchildren and my family. And how many grandkids do you have? I have five of the little darlings. Have you still the time to look after them on occasion? And Not pro- as much as your parents would like. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, people whose stories you want to tell. You mentioned coming to Ireland. One of the, the people whose stories you tell has a, mm. a very strong link north of the border in Ireland. How do you find them? Well, Lali, of course. He found me. Silka, that was me keeping a promise to Lali to tell the story of the bravest person he ever knew. I had to tell her story, which wasn't easy when you only get a one-book deal. But thankfully to all these wonderful readers, the publishers were quite keen to give me a second book deal. The third book, The Three Sisters, a son of this one of those sisters living in Toronto and Canada, picked up the book flying to visit his mum in Israel and left it on her coffee table. And Canada has a different cover to, to the UK. It has the Australian cover which is just a black background and these two arms coming from the elbow down and grasping into the fingers. But it's got the numbers of Lully and Gita on it. And when he left it on his mother's coffee table, this 94-year-old lady walked past, looked down and went, oh, that must be about Lully and Gita. And when he bamboozled, said, how could you know that? And she said, well, look at the number on the girl's arm. Now look at mine. That's Gita's number. See, mine's three apart. I was standing just behind her. Your Auntie Sibby is two away. We went this to is the numbers tattooed yeah. to identify the, the prisoners yeah. in Auschwitz. They went to school with Gita. They were on the train going to Auschwitz with Gita and they were in Block 29 with Gita. And Gita had been to Israel several times and stayed with them. 
What a remarkable coincidence. And explain then the how you found for Sisters Under the Rising Sun. You know, the you folks here in, in the, the Northern Hemisphere, Europe was, can we say, your war, so to speak. Well, for me, growing up in New Zealand, it was all about the Asia-Pacific theatre of war. Uh, and that's all I heard about. Family members, my father fought in the Pacific, uncles and that who didn't come back. So I always had a bit of an understanding about it. And it was just a, a casual comment by um, actually my wonderful publisher in London who said to me, have you heard anything about the story of the Australian nurses who were captive prisoners of the Japanese? And I went, no, missed that one. So I was thinking about it, had a little read, couldn't find much. And I was having lunch with a couple of ex-colleagues at the hospital where I worked. I went, okay, you guys are my vintage and you were actually educated in Australia. I wasn't. I'll float this at you. And so I mentioned it to them. And one of these friends... Didn't even put a fork down, didn't bat an eyelid. She goes, oh, yeah, one of those nurses is my second cousin, Nestor James. I know her story. I know their story. Da-da! And the thing with the, where you talk about the Pacific theatre, the, I wonder is it slightly more challenging to write about because one of the things that is well-known and accepted is the German and Nazi behaviour during the Second World War. You are free and easy and able to castigate it for the horrors that it was. Mm-hmm. The Japanese managed to somewhat break away from the reputation that they had after the Second World War and from the gross brutality in the prisoner of war camps. Do you therefore have to be, do you have to tread more carefully because it's, it's not as well ventilated as what the Nazis did? I couldn't give a damn. Um, I know growing when I was in New Zealand, you know, the first time this big container ship came down to Auckland and it had Japanese cars on it, the first Japanese cars to come into the country, uh, they, the ship pulled up and the dock workers were there to sort of offload all these containers full of boats. And somehow every single crane carrying every single container accidentally dropped them in the harbour. That is the depth of the, the Japanese sentiment when I was growing up and what you know, we were told. And I know it sounds harsh, but look, my family and my extended family, they would not acknowledge anything Japanese. So it was very real for them. i tell you the other area that differs too between the Germans and the Japanese is the Germans were sticklers for keeping paperwork and documents, not so much the Japanese. There is no list anywhere of these women being in that camp. These women, the, the gender is also interesting in this because in the same way as the Japanese don't get quite the, I think, don't have the same reputation for brutality, though it may be as deserved as the, mm. the Nazis. The women in Japanese prisoners of war camps don't get much in the way of attention. The stories of particularly the British soldiers made it to, to this side of the uh, world. But this is the first that I had read about women being in, in the POW camps. There was 500 of them, in the, at least 500 in that camp in the beginning by the time they were liberated or found, they weren't liberated, they were just stumbled upon. Uh, there was less than half that, but the exact numbers are not known because the names are not known. Uh, when the, the uh, paratroopers did find them in that camp and eventually could get them out, two of those uh, paratroopers were Australian and so they took their nurses first. Again, that's the only list we have of names other than uh, records and testimonies where the women are mentioned by randomly by name. But in terms of a, a comprehensive list that doesn't exist. And it's also, I mean, what's fascinating where you, you, you talk in the book about the, the supports that the women required when they returned home. Um, I think it was uh, uh, related to um, Netta, but maybe I have it wrong. 12 months of hospitalisation to recover. 
Yeah, those kind of tropical diseases that those women suffered from, they never really uh, got over them. They actually plagued them. And yes, Nesta was in hospital for 12 Nesta, months. my apologies. But she, um, she also suffered from it for the rest of her life. She was in and out of hospital for the rest of her life. And that's not uncommon. But I want to start talking about Nora, Nora Chambers. Having found the story of the Australian nurses, folks, I thought that's all I'd be telling. That's all I had. But the one good thing and I do say the one that the Australian government of the day did, was to have these surviving nurses record uh, a testimony of what had happened to them. And that was done quite soon after they arrived back in Australia. So, of course, their memories were, were really, really uh, fresh and vibrant. And this one name kept popping up in all these testimonies. And I found a couple of biographies that a couple of nurses did, long, long out of print. And again, there's this name, Nora Chambers, Nora Chambers. Nora Chambers, responsible for so many women surviving. And when I then went looking into Nora Chambers and discovered what she gave to those women in the camp, um, not alone, of course, Margaret Dryberg, an English missionary, was there with her. But I think Nora, who went that one step further in bringing into the jungle music, the power of music, folks. And there is no doubt in my mind but what Margaret Dryberg and Nora Chambers did in creating choirs, and one particular, that it gave those women the will to live another week to be able to come back on Saturday night to the concert and hear that music. Two things. Do you feel any um, pressure, any weight of responsibility when you are telling the stories of real individuals? Because obviously you have to imagine a lot around the skeleton of their stories. And I wonder what level of responsibility comes with that. And do you feel any particular responsibility for historical accuracy, particularly given the Auschwitz Museum strangely having a go at you after the first book? I'll deal with the first question first. Um, with regard to the, I keep mentioning, and I will never stop mentioning, that there were 500 plus women in this camp. To be able to write about all of them is impossible because I don't have enough about them all. For me, I make it very clear to everybody this story, which I have condensed down to maybe 10 characters, uh, is those 500 women's story. And you know, I agonise over when I'm writing a vignette about something that happened to one of the women who I've not named. But it is so important. It's, it's in, it has such a bearing on the story. And I've given it to one of the other main characters. So that was a real challenge for me to come to terms with doing that. I do in the back name just uh, quite a few of the women because it's important for me that some of them are known. But for many of them, there is no record of their names. But, yeah, it's, um, this story not only represents the 500 women that were in that camp, there were other camps that had both men and women in it, lots of men, lots of Australian and British men. A lot of them were on Changi. The most famous sort of Japanese prison was on Singapore Island called Changi. So in terms of um, telling their stories, I found at least two sources of every vignette in there. I found a record of it somewhere. I don't need to make this up. It's there and I find it. What then about the historical accuracy? Well, the historical accuracy was this one is uh, not too difficult to sort of create around because there's nothing written about it. There is no records other than what these women have made in giving testimonies and the, the few um, um, memoirs and, and a wonderful book called Woman Beyond the Wire by um, John Sanderlands and Lavinia Warner. Brilliant account of these women, uh, but non-fiction. And were you annoyed when the Auschwitz Museum 
Brad's statement. Yeah, look, initially I was kind of surprised and then I thought, because it's, I sorry, not. Just in case people are unfamiliar, it seems relatively innocuous. It was it was because picking it was. holes in things like whether or not the, the uh, buses were used for transport within the camp, which I would have thought were something tangential to the overall, I mean, who am I to judge? But it doesn't judge seem away, to be central. <laughs> Uh, yes, look, it was really interesting, and and you know we dug deeper into hang on what's going on here, and look without going too much into it, it kind of translated to it only being one particular person that had an issue with it, but was able to be vocal about it. Um, here's the thing about history and memory: they don't always walk side by side, and so I very easily came to the the for me the notion that. I'm not telling the story of the Holocaust. All you wonderful academics and historians have done that and keep it going. I've just told a story. This is Lully's memory. And you don't get to say it's wrong because every single survivor there who was standing side by side remembers and relates their story differently. That's the reality of memory, folks. The new book is called Sisters Under the Rising Sun and the author is Heather Mars. Heather, thank you very much for coming in. My absolute pleasure. The Anton Savage Show with Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.